according to St. Mark, chapter 10, beginning at verse 17. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he had heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother, or father, or children, or fields, for my sake, and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. This has been the hardest year of my life. How many times have you heard that or something like it? I suspect we've been either hearing or thinking some version of it quite a lot over the last while. Our world has been made strange to us, and many are suffering, invisible 
as well as invisible ways. Research into the impact of the COVID pandemic demonstrates significantly increased levels of anxiety and depression during the, res the restrictions. And the Central Statistics Office reported the lowest life satisfaction rating in February 2021 since that data started being collected in 2013. Just over 57% of people surveyed reported a negative impact on their mental health during the pandemic. The Irish Health Service executive has said that it is bracing for what it calls a tsunami of demand for mental health care, which, quote, will persist for months to years afterwards and will be compounded by the economic impact of the pandemic, unquote. As of July of this year, there were already more than 2,500 children, children, waiting for a mental health services appointment, with just over 250 of them waiting for more than a year. Our world is hurting, in spoken, but often in unspoken ways. The COVID crisis may have grabbed our attention, but looming on the horizon of our consciousnesses are the climate crisis already upon us. Political uncertainties that feel threatening and beyond our control, and the sheer magnitude of human misery beyond our reach in places like Afghanistan. Billions of individual, personal, and community griefs are beyond our fathoming. Some of them are ours. Deaths we've been unable to mourn properly. Losses we will never regain. Moments of joy or commemoration unmarked. Hopes set aside. Longings unfulfilled. And for each of these that are ours, there are so many more that are not. Many feel fragile, anxious, and powerless. How are we to be and to respond in this moment? What does it look like to pray and to live and to minister faithfully in this now? There's certainly a line of thinking that says, let's move on. Let's get on with living. We've had enough and we've heard enough. But I think that there are many clear indicators that we and the world around us are, in a number of ways, very much still in pain. And for those who are struggling and suffering, moving swiftly on as though nothing has happened is difficult, challenging, and rings false. The rise in popularity of what is being called dystopian literature and television is one indicator of that. Right now, when things are dark, people in our world are looking into the dark, possibly for a reflection of what they are experiencing and as a way to find their way in it. Tonight, you might say, our world is crying out, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? These first words of Psalm 22 are familiar to us. We know them as Jesus' words from the cross. And in the cross, Jesus prays along with each of us who have honestly felt these words. He gives us permission to pray them. So tonight, what does it look like to pray Psalm 22 into our moment? I want to suggest tonight that Psalm 22 and its sibling laments are perhaps the poems we've been looking for. The words scripture gives for moments just like these. Moments when we need our darkness known and expressed. Moments when we cannot fathom what lies beyond this. Moments when we need God in our very real pain. The poem gives us words to feel our darkness known and expressed. In this prayer, the psalmist can be known and heard. Forsakenness bursts out of the psalmist. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Distant from my deliverance, my roaring words. This psalmist roars out complaint, making the sound like the threatening lion who made later in the psalm. This wildness, this animal nature is thematic in the psalm. Grief, rage, frustration, the world of the psalmist's hurt have reshaped the psalmist's voice and expression of their very self as they wrestle through what they are before God. I am a worm. I am melted. I am destined for dust. The complaint goes around in circles. It piles up images of trouble as threatening beasts with gaping mouths, bulls, lions, dogs. Their ominous open mouths close in as the psalmist envisions them circling. The beastliness within the psalmist's own self roars out even as the world all around them roars and paces and draws ever closer. I've used tidy scientific words to describe our world's moment. The words of the statistical reports. Anxiety, decreased life satisfaction, mental health services. But these are not the words that the sufferer voices. The psalm gives voice to the things we so often do not or even cannot voice. And in doing that, it allows us to be heard for the chaotic things, the nonlinear, circular things, for the roaring, raging things, for the size too deep for words. In this prayer, the psalmist and we can be known and heard. But the psalmist knows another side to our human experience of suffering. Even as the psalmist rages before their troubles, they give voice to their own powerlessness. 
Interspersed with these powerfully threatening animal images are vivid pictures of bodily disintegration. The psalmist melts. Liquid images come one upon each other, and we feel that sense that everything solid within has gone soft, quivering. We sink into a puddle before our grief. My heart is like wax, melted in the middle of my gut. But we are not refreshed. We are parched, dried up like a broken piece of pottery, shriveled and emaciated. I can count all my bones. As the psalmist expresses their pain from all its angles, circling back around again and again, the images give voice to their desperation, their weakness, their brokenness. They do not need to gather them up and make sense of them. The raging, the roaring, and the puddling coalesce in an expression of grief that is as real as it is raw and unmanaged. In this prayer, the psalmist and we can be known and heard. The psalmist expresses a pain that is complex. It is mingled with tenderness and with memories that should be comforting, but stand in stark contrast to the reality of the moment. The psalmist knows the history of trust in the Lord and deliverance. They trusted. They trusted but it is someone else's deliverance. Standing alongside the psalmist's own struggle, the contrast is stark. The psalmist even knows better moments in their own story. Tender images of the psalmist's own birth use the same language of trust to create an image of God giving the psalmist security through their mother's care. But the outburst, do not be far off from me, for trouble is near, for there is no helper, comes back in straight away. The image of tenderness, of closeness, just up against the moment of felt distance and aloneness. The contrast is stark. And in that contrast, in the tension between what is known and believed and what is felt, psalmist and we can be seen and heard and known. By praying these words, we hear and know our own struggle, and we pray alongside millions of others whose words of pain and struggle join with ours. In it, we and they are known and heard. And in that action, we find ourselves less alone. Isolation and separation are realities that have been brought home to us in these days. And we have known in a new way the truth the divine voice speaks over us, that we are not made to be alone. And Psalm 22 has the ability to make us less alone. Even as we cry, there is no one to help. We are joining a choir of voices that cries these words with us through the ages. Our moment 
and its very real difficulties for us are placed within the span of human moments. Not to minimize this moment or this person or this pain, but to remind us we are not alone. The psalmist knows this too. In its devastating opening line, the poem already offers the beginnings of the resolution that will lead to its ultimate triumphant exaltation. It is an exaltation which proclaims the total reversal of the undoing into death, where generations are raised up from the dust to go on telling the goodness of God, even to those not yet. The psalmist's very real, very intense, very personal extreme suffering belongs within the chorus of both human suffering and human exaltation. But that's not the whole answer. It's not just that in praying this prayer we join our voices with other people throughout history and into the future generations and find ourselves less alone. It is that in praying this prayer, we call upon the God who meets us in our distress. Notice that the psalmist doesn't just cry out, I'm so alone. From its very first word, spoken twice, the psalmist invokes a relationship with the creator of the cosmos. These are words not addressed just to God but to my God. You and I pepper the song, sharply contrasting the psalmist's diminished, desperate state with the majesty of the God to whom they cleave. A lament is not alone. It is an urgent cry for help addressed to God. The psalmist's distress is precisely that they pray to God but feel unanswered. But that doesn't stop them crying out. Instead, they live out what has been aptly called a fierce faith. A persistence that despite the pain and the frustration of this moment, the roaring and the melting and the circling around, there is one worth reaching towards. The early sections of the poem flick their gaze from the psalmist's own desperation to who God is, and then back to the psalmist's own self. It is as though the psalmist looks for help and gets engulfed again as a wave crashes over them. And in that moment of attention to the glory of God, we hear an important reality. God dwells in the praises of God's own people. The NRSV has translated the term enthroned, and certainly it often does mean sit or sit down, but it is also very commonly the word for to inhabit, and is used to refer to the residence or place or region. What's telling is where it's paired with returns. In verse 3, the psalmist describes God as inhabiting the praises of Israel. Shortly after the third time that the psalmist pleads with God not to be distant, 
The psalm itself turns toward praise, and the psalmist first vows to do some praising of their own, and then starts demanding that others join in. The psalm does not explain its trend. One moment the psalmist is pleading for deliverance. In the next breath, the poem announces praise, and the psalm's attention shifts from addressing God to addressing a congregation that it invites into its exaltation. Could it be that the psalmist finds the presence of God precisely where they have already known God meets with God's people? Is the psalmist's exuberance in envisioning worship more than thankfulness for deliverance, but entry into the deliverance the one who feels forsaken by God, whose plight, is whose plight is over and over again that God is far off, now urges all those around to join in praising the one whose dwelling is in those praises. It is as though the psalmist grasps for the presence of God in worship, a nearness that responds to the loneliness of their grief. We are going to rejoice as we move out of the darknesses of our experiences. The sharp edges of pain grow softer. Morning comes. We turn towards hope. We are starting now to return to joys remembered and presences missed. Our congregations and our community groups are increasingly reopening their doors and striving towards bringing news. As we do this, I pray that we might do it in an awareness of the presence of the God who knows our weakness and our frailty, and who promises to meet with us and to remain for some, these returns and reunions will be unremittingly joyful. The pleasures of them are untarnished. Others will carry into those moments of joy scars and incompletely healed wounds. Is our welcome wide enough to embrace them both? Our world is hurting even as it races to rejoice. It is looking into darkness and finding there further expressions of its own fears. It seeks comfort in a company of shared suffering. As we seek to be God's people in this moment, may we be honest company who walk with and alongside people who seek to have their pain expressed and heard and held with care. May we also be the great congregation. Those who by crying out to my God invoke the presence and reality of God's light and love in the midst of the darkness. Our God is one who sits upon the praises of Israel. Our Savior is one who meets us on the paths of Galilee in the cry from the cross and at table with his friends. 
As we pray these words, we by no means minimize the reality of our experience and we inject into the darkness something our culture's reflections of darkness cannot offer. We speak the truth of the always. In Jesus' promise, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Or put differently, we embrace the reality captured in the words of a beautiful creed from the United Church of Canada. In life, in death, in life beyond death, God is with us. We are not alone. Thanks be to God.